Hello, I'm Asia-Pacific analyst Evan Reese, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. To learn more about Stratfor Worldview, ThreatLens, or Stratfor's custom advisory services, visit us at stratfor.com. any good historical crime book, you're not just talking about the crime and about the victims. You're really building that world. What did people do for a living? What were they wearing? What were they eating? Welcome to the Stratfall Podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfall.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. We're continuing with the podcast focus on true crime, espionage, and mysteries. And that's mainly because Chief Security Officer Fred Burton is making us. These episodes of the Stratfall Podcast have even developed a special name, The Pen and Sword. On today's episode, author Kate Dawson talks about her book, Death in the Air, the true story of a serial killer, the Great London Smog, and the strangling of a city. As the poem goes, the fog comes in on little cat feet. It sits looking over harbour and city on silent haunches and then moves on. And what happens next is sure to be gripping. Let's go over to Fred and Kate. Hello, I'm Fred Burton. I recently chatted with Kate Dawson, the author of Death in the Air, the true story of a serial killer, the great London smog, and the strangling of a city. We got to talking about how she picks the topics that she writes about. You know, the number one is I am bored by, I would say, 90% of crime, particularly contemporary crime. But historic crime has to really trigger something with me. And I think that, you know, the checklist is... Um, has to have, number one, historical significance. You know, I, I think we're all kind of products of our past. So I read that your dad, you know, started the, uh, I want to make sure I get this right, the actual innocence clinic that you also picked up and, and ran for a bit. Yeah. So um, your motivation for doing that is is different. Uh, you know, coming from a a cop background of let's put all the bad guys in prison forever, and if they hadn't committed that crime, I'm sure they did something else in the past. Mm-hmm. So That's some dangerous thinking, isn't it? It is. <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of cops think like that. Yeah. I mean, what's with this this motivation there? Well, that's an interesting question. So, you know, as you had mentioned, my father was a law professor at the University of Texas for 37 years. So, you know, I really grew up going to his law school classes, which were all criminal um, law school classes. And uh, he and I would talk about the different aspects of the law, what he agreed with, what he didn't. He was, um, through most of his career, fighting with the Texas legislature to uh, not throw very young kids into prison. He always thought the age should be older, and they always thought the age should be younger, and so they'd have to kind of meet in the middle. And uh, I used to joke with him that, boy, you know, when I was 15, I'd say, well, you're trying to throw 15-year-olds into prison. And he would say, they're trying to throw 13-year-olds into prison, so I'm just compromising here. <laughs> so, you know, I, I watched him in front of the classroom and in the Texas legislature really fight for what he thought was right. And we talked about individual cases. And when he started the actual innocence clinic, 
um, which is part of the nonprofit, the Texas Center for Actual Innocence at UT Law School. And this was in 2003. Uh, you know, I told him I wanted to be involved, and uh, he died two years later before he was able to see one of our exonerations. Mm. And so I got involved. I didn't end up running it. I ended up, um, you know, co-teaching some classes and, and uh, collaborating with the law school students, um, with journalism students. And that was really fulfilling for me because I, it connected me with my father even more than we had already been connected. And, you know, then on the other side of my family is my mother, who was a clinical uh, psychologist. Oh, wow. And I was just looking about a, six months ago. I was uh, prepping for an interview for, you know, the book. And we were at my mom's house, which is around the corner from where I live now in Austin. And I was looking at the bookshelves, and they were filled with – these are the same books I grew up with – filled with books that I think are just – everything, every aspect of violence you could think of. So there's In Cold Blood. You know, there's uh, Stephen King. There's uh, Clive Cussler. I mean, there are all these really horrible books. And they were just sort of normal for me just to flip through. So I think that The Alienist, I think that really explains a lot from my mindset. And then, of course, you know, as as a TV news producer for almost 30 years in New York and San Francisco and London and Boston, I, I really reported on a lot of crime, and so I, I I became really interested in it because it's sort of like sports for me. You know, crime really reveals a lot. It's a it's a great way to tell a story. There's a beginning and a middle and an end. There's a narrative arc. You have usually really good characters. It's significant somehow in society. It, like I said, like a lot like sports, and it's a great way to to tell a story. But you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about what I, th- what what I'm, what I gravitate towards, the sort of subjects that I gravitate towards in in books and in this podcast I'm creating and in any stories I'm telling. And so I have a, a pretty specific checklist that I think a lot of narrative nonfiction authors have. So one is the story has to have historical significance, and with the book Death in the Air, you know, it's. A braided narrative, and the the fog was the Great Smog of 1952, which was the world's deadliest air pollution disaster. Which I did not know of until I read your book. And most people didn't, including in London. Most most people in London didn't know either. So, I, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of been buried, I think, not purposefully, but in in Britain, it was just sort of a part of life. And, um, you know, it's it's stunning to, I think, a lot of people in America and I think stunning now to people in Britain. But really back, back then it was part of just being a Londoner. You know, you're living in this industrialized city, in an overpopulated city. So, um, you know, the other half of the story, which is about the serial killer John Reginald Christie, Christie and his crimes were the reason why – the UK abolished the death penalty in the 60s. So, you know, these are two stories that had historical significance. And then another checklist, another part of the checklist for me would be a story that would resonate today. So air pollution, we all understand. Uh, Wrongful conviction, we all understand. You know, crime, we understand. Government corruption, we understand. And these are all things that, you know, history is repeating itself in various areas, both in UK and Britain, and in, I'm sorry, uh, UK and America. So I think that these stories really resonate with uh, a modern audience. I have to want to kind of, I know it's odd for me to say live, but I want to live in that world for a couple of years at least. And so that is London, which is one of my most favorite cities in the world. So that was a, a big check mark for me. 
uh, the 1950s. You know, it's odd. I have a friend who is not interested in any crimes committed before 1960, <laughs> and I'm not interested in any crimes committed after 1959. So there you go. We don't get to compete with each other, which is great. I, I really – almost the older the better, you know. Um, so 1950s London I think is really underrepresented. It's not the Blitz, so we don't see a lot of it in pop culture. And then it's not the 60s, you know, which is sort and of – And it's after the war. It's after the war. So right. you're in this really depressing area, this decade of you know racial tension and – a lot of grime, a lot of crime, a lot of uh, rebuilding, depressed people. That all really fit in with the themes that I was you know, really trying to highlight. But in any good historical crime book, you're not just talking about the crime and about the victims. You're really building that world. I mean, who, what did people do for a living? What were they wearing? What were they eating? Why is a living room called a living room and no longer called a parlor? You know, uh, I'll just say as a quick aside, it's because you, people in the UK and in America used to keep their deceased loved ones in the parlor um, when, you know, after they died and people would come visit and they would do the visitations there and then eventually they would be buried. And when funeral parlors became popular, we sort of rebranded the parlor as the living room because it's, you know, for the living. And so, you know, those little asides for me are what makes a great book. You're not just pulled into the crime world. You're pulled into the 1950s world. And then I would say kind of the last big, big thing besides this is just a story that I, I feel like I can tell visually, which is odd because this is a book. But because I came from a filmmaker, you know, filmmaking background, uh, I really have to be able to tell the story in a way where people can smell the fog. Uh, they can, you know, feel almost feel what it feels like on their skin. It feels greasy. It's like, uh, you know, this smog when you're breathing it in. It feels like the shavings from metal going down your throat. Uh, smells like rotten eggs. Those sort of adjectives, those descriptions, make people understand just kind of how horrible that environment was. And so I need to be able to do that. And then I think really the big, big, big last thing I have, I have to have a big collection. You really want to have memoirs and diaries and, you know, dying declarations and trial transcripts and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, those are – it's kind of a checklist. It's a big checklist for me, but I think that that creates a really good story. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with death in the air and I was also fascinated with uh, the – the very basic police work or or lack thereof initially in looking at uh, the serial killer, John Reginald Christie, to me was something just from having been a former cop and a former agent and looked at countless crimes, uh, to me that was also very interesting, just the history of that and how uh, this kind of crime was investigated. Yeah, poorly. I call it Keystone Cops. It really was, if, any under, if anyone understands that reference. I know. I know exactly what yeah. you mean. But I've, <laughs> I've participated in many Keystone Cop kind of uh, activities. Trust me. Well, and you know, it's just like any part of a story. There's more than you know one version of it. There's with the cops. They were undermanned. Notting Hill, where John Reginald Christie lived, where he killed these women and sort of spread them around the property. Was in his own home. In his own home, and it was dilapidated. And if you look at the photos in the book and just Google it, 10 Rillington Place, you can see the backyard and just – there's just everything imaginable. It's like a rummage sale for useless things in the, dumped in the backyard. 
So Christie's dog um, buried some bones and he took the bones of one of the victims, strapped it to a part of his fence that was falling yeah. down. And the cops w- walked right by it looking for a totally different pair of victims that, that they right. were actually there. But then, you know, you look at the photos and it's just like, okay, I get it. I don't even know where I would start looking around. But there were there were a lot of moments where they really dropped the ball. And of course, we can relate to that today. But I also felt badly for the police because I think they were really disorganized and they had never seen anything like this before. And they really had to work hard just to piece together. Why would this man do this? Why would he have three women in the wallpapered into the walls of his kitchen and then someone else I won't name under the floorboards of the parlor and a couple women in the backyard. And I mean, nobody had seen just a kind of a freak thing like this. So it was hard for them to understand. I (laughs) I don't, I felt a little badly for the cops, but not that badly. Uh, I think what you did with the story so well was painting this uh, picture of, of misery, not only for, your average uh, Londoner at the time, but also for the cops and trying to look at this. And and that certainly echoes in the story. Uh, and that's why I appreciate your, your description of how you wanted to approach this, because I know that's so tough to do when you're writing books is to, to, to paint the senses of what it felt like. I, I think very much as a, a episodic, almost like I'm writing a TV show. And so at the beginning of every chapter, I worked really hard to find a scene to pull people in, something visual. So at the beginning of one chapter... That's very good advice, though, in general. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important building a scene and pulling someone in and uh, drawing in the characters. And I'm also a big fan of red herrings throughout the book. I tried that. It's weird to say that in a nonfiction book. But for instance, at the very beginning... I describe a woman, who, this beautiful woman who's choking and grasping her throat and, you know, is, is essentially being murdered. And what you find out after a few paragraphs is she's actually an opera singer who's trying to perform in a very famous Italian opera. And the smog is just choking everyone in the audience. She can't see the orchestra. It's a miserable experience. So for a couple of paragraphs, you think this is a victim. Who is she a victim of? Is this the serial killer again? What's happening? How did you stumble upon this story? Three or four – now I guess at this point it's about five years ago when I was looking for my first book. I went on Getty Images, which is this great repository for photos, Absolutely. photos that it's you can fabulous. buy. And I just started tooling around on it and I ran across the woman who – the striking woman who's the cover of my book. And I saw the description that this was from the Great Smog of 1952. And then I started through that checklist. Has anybody else done this story? Why would nobody else do the story? Well, I found out. It's because it's really hard to turn the smog into the boogeyman, and that's what you have to do. You know, I mean, air pollution, when you look at any of the film footage that the BBC filmed during the smog, people are sort of smiling and walking through it It, it because this happened every year. This was just more intense and longer. It was very par for the course. And so I really had to make sure that I was going to be able to pull this type of book off and I could turn the the smog into the boogeyman. We'll get back to Fred's conversation with Kate Dawson about Death in the Air in just one moment. And if you're interested in reading this book, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. Kate Dawson talks about the essential ingredients that she needs to choose the perfect topic for her true crime writing. Likewise, Stratfor provides critical information to businesses and professionals who need to know how emerging world events will affect them, their employees, 
and their businesses. Our analyst team provides invaluable insight into the short and long-term implications of what's happening right now, and that's so you can develop a more accurate view of the future. With detailed maps, charts, and graphs of the political, economic, and security landscape of the countries where you do business, Worldview Enterprise is a critical tool for business planning. If you're not already a Stratfor member, you can learn more about individual, team, and enterprise subscriptions at stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now, back to Death in the Air. When I looked at the book, I really felt bad for the cops having been one, but I also am trying to go back in that time period thinking, you know, how do you investigate this kind of crime when you don't have any of the modern CSI kind of technology that right. I think most people perceive today is kind of the norm. Right, absolutely. And it was still a difficult case, even though this is a man who, you know, had all of these bodies stashed on his property. And that was one of the most interesting. I'm sure, I'm sure this appeals to you also as a former police officer and investigator. With all of these buildings that he is surrounded by that have been bombed, it would have been pretty easy to drop a body into any one of these buildings, and it would have never either been found or we, you know, they would have assumed that this was a victim that had been left behind. And he still managed to keep them. He wanted to keep them, I guess, as souvenirs, sort of trophies. Around the house. Yeah. yeah, and and so I think that the police, you know, really did work hard to get confessions, and um, I think that things went sort of awry with the Timothy Evans. So just for people who haven't heard from the book. Yeah, who's Timothy? Yeah, so it's a, that's an interesting story. So John Reginald Christie himself I thought was an interesting killer. His motive was interesting. His, his method I thought was interesting. But, you know, after he killed two women, he went on um, a little bit of a break, which isn't that unusual. His wife was around a lot more. He didn't have access to the flat alone. And in the meantime, a, a young couple moved into the top floor of 10 Rillington Place and – they were the Evans, Tim, and Burl, and their 14-month daughter, Geraldine. And they moved into the top floor, and Geraldine and Burl go missing. And Timothy Evans, the husband, confesses and then recants and then confesses and then recants and then blames John Reginald Christie, who was his downstairs neighbor, who nobody knows is a serial killer. He's the only one who knows it. And Christie was, as a cop, you relate to this, a reliable witness he was a, a reserve police officer during the war. He had a swagger. He seemed pretty confident. And he testified against Timothy Evans, who was ultimately convicted of killing his wife and his child and hanged. And then two years later, when Christie is on the run and all of these bodies are behind, this is when it occurs to the police that, oh, boy, maybe – the serial killer who is in Tin Rillington Place at the time actually killed this wife and child. And so it became a, a kind of a classic case of not just wrongful conviction, but wrongful execution. Of course, there's a lot of debate over that. I happen to have a, a very particular opinion about what happened in that case. But I think, uh, I think that again is anybody who can appreciate a good story will look at the evidence and, and make their own decision. And I think they made an assumption that this was just a domestic violence case that went wrong, and then you know they lacked some some pretty serious evidence later on. So, and as you go through the book and you start outlining uh, the facts, it I also digressed into like what would I have done and looking at certain aspects here and so forth. So it's it's also a uh, fabulous kind of training tool in thinking about uh, 
how to investigate these kinds of crimes, which uh, to me is always interesting. Uh, but you said something that that um, piqued my curiosity uh, with this. When you're looking at this kind of case, are you are you going after stories that where you have a sense of um, wrongdoing and trying to correct that as an injustice, or what was your real motivation there in putting this together? Well, it's interesting because because of my father's clinic, the Innocence Clinic, I'm sort of trained to think about everybody's innocent to proven guilty. And, you know, that I absolutely believe and we know that there are innocent people in prison. And so I've taken law school students and journalism students to prisons to interview, you know, people who have been there convicted for murder, serving life prison sentences, to kind of sort out whether or not we think they have a real case of innocence. And so I went into this thinking, this is just going to be a great story. I assumed Timothy Evans was was innocent and that John Christie had killed not just six women, but but this woman and this child. And I was a little surprised that when I actually kept an open mind and looked at the evidence that I changed my mind. So I really – I don't know if I went in trying to correct a wrong. I really did feel like this would teach a reader – not just about the specific case, but what you said, you know, a little bit about police procedure when things go wrong um, on the smog side, the government corruption part of it, and, um, you know, how how we might think about these two separate issues, wrongful conviction and air pollution today. And so, yeah, I think I, I, think I go into these stories thinking sort of wider. First of all, it's a for me. It's a very selfish motivation, which is just I love a hell of a good story, <laughs> and I love digging into it. And I love research, and I love building these worlds, and I love introducing these voices that sit on the desktop of my computer, and I have this just fear that they're going to just stay there, that nobody's ever going to hear them for whatever reason. And so I work really hard to just figure out ways ways to get these stories out here that I think are really important. And every book that I've done, there's always things that I either would have added or or left out in retrospect. And I know you can drive yourself crazy second-guessing yourself in these kinds of stories, but in in Death in the Air, what's the one thing that you probably, in looking back, would have included or excluded that you had in the story? I think I wish that I had been able to include – I you know, I have these – this uh, – group of I call them characters, but that's, you know, really exclusively for fictional stories, but they are characters for me. They're real people. I had these group of characters, Stanley Crichton, who was a cop, Rosemary Merritt, who was the thirteen year old girl sergeant, and then um Lynn Trevelyan, who was a police officer in the John Christie story. And these were people who were alive. I was able to interview them, which was really powerful for me. I wish that I had found some other characters to add in who were also alive. I had to depend on some characters who had passed away and had left plenty of source material, which was wonderful. But for instance, the politician Norman Dodds, who is the reason why there eventually was a Clean Air Act in Britain and then in the United States, even though he's not known for that. And he only had one living relative, his daughter-in-law. And she had some material of his, but, boy, I just feel like I could have had a much richer story if he were alive and I was able to talk to him. So I don't know if that's a leaving in or leaving out. I wish that I had had a different set of resources. But that's the – you know, any of your your listeners who appreciate World War II stories know 
we're kind of at the end, you know, yeah. with these with these survivors. I right. think we might be at the end with these survivors, and that's very frustrating. I have a fear for writers in the future who will lack the sources of just printed material in the archives that I'm able to dig into because everything's done via email. I mean, what's going to happen in 70 years when trying somebody's trying to do a story on you, a book on you, and everything you've done is via email? I know. I know exactly what you mean. What's next for you, Kate? I have a book that's going to be coming out in February with uh, Putnam and Sons, which is Penguin Random House. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited about it. It's called American Sherlock, and it, it's. I need an advanced copy. Okay, of I'm on, you're on the list. Murder, <laughs> forensics, and the and the birth of American CSI. Now that is right up my alley yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Tell, tell me a little bit about it if you can. Yeah, it's it's really I'm really excited about it because forensics is a passion of mine, and I actually consider going back to school and getting a degree in CSI, forensic science. Mm-hmm. This is a book about a forensic scientist who worked from about 1915 until 1953 when he died in his lab, in his desk, and his name was Oscar Heinrich, and he worked on the West Coast. So again, this is checking off a lot of boxes for me. I lived in San Francisco. He worked in Berkeley. I love this time period. And and so what I'm doing is I'm looking through the lens of Oscar Heinrich about the development of forensics during this time period. He was an expert in several disciplines in forensics, but he really knew a little bit about a lot. And we really don't have those anymore. We don't have the Sherlock Holmes who show up to a crime scene and know that you can test a grain of sand to find out where the sand came from specifically or who understand ballistics or who could look at and test for, you know, do toxicology. You send these off. We have specialists now and, and these things take time and they go off in, in two or three at least different areas. And he really was able to go to a crime scene and survey it and, like Sherlock Holmes, would say, okay, here are all the tests I can run and here's what I think happened. And so he was able to – just to give you an example, he was sent a piece of a scalp with an ear attached and no body and no body. And And the police said, can you help us? We don't even know if this is a male or female. And he was able to take a grain of sand and run a test and find out exactly where it was. And based on what he knew about the properties of sand, also about bugs and how bugs arrive in a certain succession at a body, he was able to locate the body 15 miles away in a totally different area. How did you find him? You know, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, which is unusual. Not that Wikipedia is a great source, but (laughs) it's a good starting point. I was reading – I sort of just decided historical true crime was where I'm going with my career other than teaching at the University of Texas. (laughs) And so I bought this really big book, uh, an anthology of crime, starting from the Pilgrims. Yes, we had a killer on the Mayflower coming over here. Starting from the Pilgrims all the way until 1970, which is the the book was published in 1970, which was perfect for me. And so I just started reading. It's thousands of crimes. I'm a lot of mobsters, particularly in the 40s and 50s. And I think I got into probably it's a, like an 800 page book. And I think I got a quarter of the way through. And I was reading about this incredible train robbery and how this forensic scientist took a pair of overalls and found more than 20 clues just from the pair of overalls of these train robbers and how they were able to eventually track them down based on his description. So, you know, he returned the overalls and said, this, the guy who owned these overalls was 5'10", he was left-handed, he had light brown hair, 
he had a limp. I mean, just like it went on and on and that on. That is Sherlock. And it was great. Right. It really was. And that, and that was his nickname, American Sherlock. But while he was an innovator with um, some pretty incredible forensic techniques and ballistics and, and you know, other things, he also innovated some junk science and, and ruined some lives, absolutely, mm. by giving misinformation. And that's what happens now. We have people who are in prison right now because a dog sniffed them. Right. And identified them as suspects. Bite mark analysis, somebody bites someone else, and we used to believe you could match teeth to a, a bite sure. mark. It's not the case. Right. And so, you know, it's a, for me, very much a, a look at where we were then and where we are now and how it's developed, but told in a narrative. So it's told through him. And again, another check mark for me was he had a massive collection at University of California, Berkeley. He is essentially his son had essentially just donated his entire lab. He was a, for sure obsessive compulsive personality disorder because he kept every single thing that he ever had, and so it was it was incredible. It was a treasure trove for me. I can't wait to read that story. That's American Sherlock, which is Kate Dawson's next book. But I have to ask you, based on your expertise, how do you feel about um, all the current DNA testing where everybody's going through with the the family testing and the private services that are out there now trying to find these serial killers and so forth. Yeah. And there's been some very successful closures of mm-hmm. cases. Golden Just, State Killer oh, is yeah, the biggest. It's, it's been amazing yeah. to, to watch that unfold. And, of course, he had been a cop as well, yeah. which is what we would call cover for action. Is this something that uh, you think is a good thing, or is it something that folks uh, you know, from a privacy perspective should really be worried about? You know, I think it's hard because – Police officers should be given every tool possible, from from my point of view, to be able to solve a crime. I'm a little bit more alarmed about the government, the government as a whole, having access to my DNA. I haven't quite done it yet. I'm really close to doing 23andMe, I think, but it's very scary. Uh, not that I have a fear that there's some sort of killer lurking in my <laughs> family, but for me, having these tools, I mean, the amount of peace that the victims and the families that the Golden State Killer had after he was caught through, you know, a DNA. I think it was genealogy. I can't remember. It ancestry. Was, yeah. it was one of those. Right. Um, I think it was incredible. And there's a really great podcast out right now called Bear Brook that addresses this, where they are um, trying to locate the victims or, or trying to name the victims of this serial killer where they can't identify the victims because it's been so long in using genealogy. So I think that as a source is incredible. But I think, you know, you really have to be aware of what you're getting into when you spit and send it off. You're really opening yourself up, no matter what these websites say about protection and privacy. And, you know, DNA in general is is so difficult because everybody thinks DNA is infallible and it absolutely is fallible. I mean, the way, especially with cold cases, the way that DNA was collected even, you know, 10 years ago or or less was um hit and miss. It was wrong. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a really famous case about two women who were killed, assaulted and killed on a beach in Southern California. And uh, they were trying to make the connection, and they found DNA on both. And the DNA came from a mixture of a killer, a known killer, and a DNA analyst. And found out later on, the CSI could not get out from the, you know, under the cover of all the scrutiny. And he ended up killing himself, even though it was clear he had not done um, the killing himself. And it was because their techniques 
for using DNA collection and testing were so horrible back then that everything, you know, that was corrupted. It's amazing. It certainly is. Now, is the Innocence Clinic still uh, in operation at the University of Texas? Oh, yeah. We're, we're still plugging away. It's great. Okay. So we, um, I think about six or seven years ago, we uh, had an exoneration that was really wonderful. Two men that were imprisoned for 15 to 20 years for a murder they didn't commit and, um, you know, we, we ended up getting them out. And I wish my father had been here for that. I mean, he really believed that if even 1% of people in prison were innocent, that we really needed to look at the laws and how we convict people and the tools, particularly that we use to convict people. That's what speaks to me in all of these books is I am frequently reporting in these books on men who kill women, which is a real conflict for me. Because I will always, when I do historical true crime, be reporting on men who kill women. And so one of my goals in every project I do is to make sure that the women and their families, those people, those characters and those stories are strong enough and interesting enough to take on and kind of combat the strength of the serial killer. Because I think in in most books, in most projects, in most films that you watch, women – and the victims are simply plot devices, you know, ways to evoke emotion. But then we, we forget about them. And the serial killer becomes a star. And so that was something my father talked a lot about is just making sure that we're humanizing the victims. Well, Kate, you've done a great job with Death in the Air. And uh, we certainly look forward to American Sherlock. And thank you so much for being in the Stratfor studio today. Well, I really appreciate it. I think this is a great interview. Thanks, Fred. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Stratfor's Chief Security Officer, Fred Burton, and Kate Dawson, author of Death in the Air, the true story of a serial killer, the Great London Smog, and the strangling of a city. If you're interested in picking up a copy of her book, we'll include details on how to purchase Death in the Air in the show notes, along with a link to Fred Burton's latest bestseller, Beirut Rules, the murder of a CIA station chief and Hezbollah's war against America. And if you want to learn how Stratfall can help you visualize and anticipate risk in the areas of the world you're most interested in, be sure to visit us and learn more about individual, team, and enterprise-level access at stratfall.com slash subscribe. And if you have a question about this podcast or even an idea for the next one, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at podcast at stratfall.com. And as always, if you have a moment, please leave a review on the podcast page on iTunes or wherever you listen. We really appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence, links, and fun facts about what goes into forecasting world events, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Stratfor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>